James chapter 1 is our sermon text for this morning. I'm going to be tying in today's passage with last week's, so I will begin reading at verse 2, and we'll read through verse 8, focusing on verses 5 through 8. This is God's holy word. It is inerrant, it's infallible, perfect to accomplish all of God's purposes. Give your attention to its reading as he gives it to us for our good. Consider its pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, Because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's quite a feeling. I wonder if any of you have ever had this experience of getting exactly what you need at exactly the correct time, exactly the moment you feel like you would would most need it. I'll never forget this. We were moving into South Holland, and it's a a bigger place than my wife and I had, had ever occupied, and so there was a lot of space to fill. There were places that looked like they needed furniture and we didn't have the furniture to put there. And even if we would have gone out and started buying a few things, it would have taken either a very long time or a great many purchases to to fill all of the space that we now had, thankfully. We praise the Lord for it. And we praise the Lord that we've been able to throw some new humans in that space in the last several years. But the day that we're moving in, to our new place in South Holland, my dad calls me. Of course, he, he knew I was, this one purely seemingly coincidental. He knew we were moving into a house. He said, hey, there's a guy in my church who's looking to get rid of some stuff. Uh, he's kind of moving into a newer stage, a, a stage of life, kind of his last chapter, wants to use his time and his energy serving people, is going to downsize. He's looking to get rid of some stuff. So can he come by with a truck and see if you want any of it? I said, well, yeah, sure. Didn't really know what to expect. But we had, uh, really, the situation was an entire bedroom that was empty and an entire big living room that was basically empty. Both of those things were kind of the, the biggest needs that we had. And here comes this very nice, godly, loving man in a moving truck. He brings a complete living room set and a complete bedroom set. The exact day that we were moving in. So I'll never forget that. The feeling of exactly seemingly what we needed, or perhaps thought we needed, is earthly possessions. It's it's really nothing ultimately. But exactly the moment that we felt we needed it. God furnishes us with exactly what we need, exactly when we need it, according to his purposes, according to his wisdom, 
in ways that go far beyond this example that I've used. What we see today is that we need wisdom in trials. We need wisdom for trials to be able to live in ways that glorify God and honor Him. And God promises to furnish us with with that specific wisdom built for trials when we come to Him in humble prayer, in earnest prayer, fervently filled with faith. So that's our central idea this morning, that God promises to furnish us with wisdom for trials when we come to Him in humble, earnest, and faith-filled prayer. We'll look at the wisdom that God gives, this wisdom that James is talking about. We'll consider God who is the giver, and then we'll consider to whom God gives this wisdom. We began our time in James last week, looking at that first passage, which is one of the most well-known in in all of James. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. It's a call to joy in trials. It's a call to faith in trials. We talked about those who have faith in trials will be those who have joy. Faith is a steadfast confidence that God is in control, that he has all of our lives in his hands, and nothing can be changed from his decree, and he's working out his good in our lives. If we believe all of that, if we trust God in all of that, therefore, uh, we can have joy in trials. All of this brings forth the central virtue of steadfastness, to be, to be steadfast, be joyful, not lacking faith, and to be steadfast, not moving to the right or to the left under the pressure of trials, not crumbling, but remaining steadfast. And that can give the the situation in which a whole host of Christian virtues can flourish. Someone who's steadfast in trials will have the assurance of God's love, joy in the Holy Ghost, all of the, the, the virtues and graces that we see all throughout Scripture. And James uh, comes today under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says at the end of last week's passage, you will not be lacking in anything if you are this kind of a person, filled with faith and joy and trials and steadfast. He says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, and so that tie-in from last week's passage to this lets us know that, that James is talking most specifically about wisdom in trials, not just the broadest definition of wisdom, but a specific type of wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. The first thing that we should notice from this is is that James is not under the assumption that none of us will lack wisdom or will lack this wisdom. In other words, he's assuming that some of the Christians who are reading this and who are hearing this will be lacking in this wisdom. Many of us read this passage and certainly we feel that we are not wise, that we badly need this kind of wisdom. But a great assurance is that this does not mean we are not one of God's children. James is assuming within his Christian audience there will be those who need to grow in this kind of wisdom. And this kind of wisdom is God's to give. It's something that does not naturally, uh, is not naturally present in the human heart. It is truly a divine gift. Wisdom This kind of wisdom belongs to God. When we hear about wisdom in biblical terms, most of us will think first of a specific character in the Bible and a specific event uh, that we read that that character lived through. 
We'll think of Solomon, and we will think of the situation where there are the two mothers who are arguing over the one, the one child. One of them has lost a child. Nobody knows who it is. And so Solomon comes to this solution uh, where it becomes very evident who is the true mother of the child. It's the mother who does not want to see any harm come to the child. We think of that. Now, that kind of wisdom is really, it's kind of a critical thinking. It's problem solving. It's an ability to to think on your feet and come up with some kind of solution to the situation at hand. We used to have these things called standardized tests, which kind of seemed to be going out of style in schools, but there was usually a section in their critical thinking, problem solving. And that's what Solomon exercises in that episode. Now what Solomon had was surely more than that. The wisdom that he had stretched beyond that. You read the Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, and what do we see? The kind of wisdom that we find in Proverbs is really a keen awareness of the way the world works in light of God. You consider God, you consider his word, you understand who he is and what he has embedded in the created order, and you will live with wisdom. So you find many things in Proverbs that uh, are wonderful prescriptions for life in light of God, in light of God's character, and in light of his world. The importance of hard work, taking your parents' advice to heart, not straying from the instruction that you receive from righteous and godly parents, Uh, not, not engaging in any host of sins because of the destructiveness that it brings about in our lives. This is general biblical wisdom. That's connected to wisdom in James, but because of the link to trials, we see and we should consider that James is defining it more narrowly for us in this context. It's a moral wisdom, a wisdom about how to live, and a wisdom about how to live in a certain kind of situation. Thomas Goodwin, Puritan pastor, of course, defines James' wisdom this way. To know how to be able to manage oneself under trials, especially great, sore, and sudden trials, and patiently... To know how to manage oneself in trials. To manage oneself under sore trials and sudden trials and to do so patiently. John Calvin calls this wisdom a skill and ability to manage oneself patiently. Managing yourself. When we face trials and are seeking to live according to to God's commandments, according to God's law, according to his word. The ability to do that in the midst of trying situations, that is the wisdom that we are considering today. And it's appropriate to call this wisdom. This is, many commentators have said this in different ways, but it's the hardest lesson of the Christian life. The hardest thing to learn, to live the way that God calls us to live when the pressure is Applied, when things get tough, when the stock market is booming, being an investor is not a very challenging thing, right? Everybody's making money. But the investor who knows how to make money when the stock market is dipping, those are the ones that you want to pay attention to. Christians who understand how to live for, how to glorify God in trials, those are the ones who have learned the hardest lessons 
of Christianity. So that is the wisdom we're talking about. Wisdom for trials. Wisdom in trials. Which is an ability to manage yourself in a God-glorifying way, according to his power, within the context of trials. So, let's consider God the giver. If this is God's to give, if this wisdom is a divine gift, then what are we called to do? We're called to ask God for it. That's, that's the really James' call for us this morning, to ask God for it. Clearly, we are dealing with the gift and uh, the means of prayer. We are to ask God that he would supply us with wisdom to be able to live for him and for his glory in trials. This is nothing new. This is a a disposition that James is teaching for us is nothing new, but it's something that's very difficult to learn. It is the disposition that whenever we find that we're lacking in something, we need to ask God for it. Any of the graces of the Christian life, any of the blessings that God gives, when we find that we are lacking in them, we need to be taught and trained to immediately go to prayer. This is a divine gift. I need to ask God for it. I'm struggling. I feel like my faith is weak. Faith is the gift of God. I must ask God for it. I'm struggling with my devotion, with my strength against temptation. These are God's to give. I must ask God for them. The word for asking here is is normally uh, carries the idea of someone in an inferior position asking someone in a superior position. Understanding that it is their prerogative to do what they will. It's their authority to respond how they want. Certainly, that is what we're doing when we pray to God. But he gives us promises to furnish us with confidence. Some people may say, well, aren't we promised that we're given all in Christ? That we have Christ and we have all. So what's all this talk about lacking or needing to grow? Well, of course, we are given all in Christ, all things according to salvation and life and godliness. Those who have written on Reformed spirituality talk about stirring up the graces that the Holy Spirit gives. So we understand, yes, we have all in Christ, but in the way that we are living our lives, we are not manifesting the kind of wisdom that God is able to give in Christ. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter speak this way. We think of the, the passage you read in 2 Peter Chapter 1 this morning, add to your faith virtue, virtue, godliness, godliness, brotherly affection. These ought to be yours and abounding more and more. Paul says something similar in Philippians 1, if you remember when we went through the book of Philippians. It's my prayer, Paul says, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. The apostle wants us to be flourishing and growing in all of these virtues and all of these graces. So we need to stir them up. To go to God that he might shed them abroad in our lives. To make what is already in some ways ours in Christ. To allow that to be brought out in our lives in active ways. This, of course, reinforces for us that God is the source of anything we lack. All of those graces. God is the source of those things that we lack. Notice in all of this, in this whole entire passage dealing with wisdom, growing in wisdom, four trials, the only thing that we're called to do is pray. That's the command that James gives. Pray. He has negative commands. Don't be this one who doubts. But 
All that we are to do is pray. There's no ritual or ceremony. There's no magic. There's no hocus pocus or incantation. He says, pray for this wisdom. And we pray because God is a heavenly father who delights to give good gifts to his children. James chapter 1 is a very, uh, very famous, very well-known and beloved, uh, beloved depiction of God. Every good gift, James says, every perfect gift is from above, coming from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Our God is a loving Heavenly Father who loves to give good gifts to His children. But that brings up perhaps one of the most important questions that we'll ask according to this passage, and that is, what are good gifts? God delights to give good gifts. He's always giving good gifts to his children. He's overflowing with them, and it is his great delight to give them to us. But we need to settle the question, what are good gifts? Because there's a whole religious industry that claims to be Christianity that will say, you can ask God for something if you want it, and if it's some earthly possession that you want, or or whatever, God will delight to give it to you. Or, you know, you sow some money into the work of some ministry and God will make that increase tenfold monetarily in your life. He wants you to be healthy, wealthy, prosperous in this world. Psalm 34 says, commit your ways to the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. It would be easy for someone to take that verse and say, okay, if I commit my way to the Lord, he's going to give me the new car that I want. Psalm 34 says, commit your way to the Lord And he will shape your desires. He will give you the desires for that which is truly good. We look at this passage and what are the good gifts that God gives? Wisdom. Wisdom is a good gift from God that he loves to give to his children. Steadfastness. Stronger faith. Deeper love and devotion for Christ. These are the kinds of good gifts that God loves to give to his people because all of them redound unto God's glory in a whole host of ways. We glorify God when we pray to him, when we ask him for these gifts. We glorify God when we live more like him and more according to the image of Christ. When we live as his people on the earth, we become a testimony and a witness to his grace And so, we need to know what these good gifts are. But we know that God delights to give them because he's a loving Heavenly Father. Jesus taught this to us in a parable in Luke 18. We read this. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him Day and night. Jesus sets up that parable by saying, this is an unrighteous judge. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect man. But this person who comes continually to him, he finally relents. Jesus says, now consider your God is righteous. He is just. And he loves you. He loves you. 
He loves you more than you could ever know. As his child, you come to him. Will he not furnish you with the good gifts that he gives? And so we have to ask ourselves, brothers and sisters, do we ask? Do we ask for wisdom? Have we been asking for it? Do you desire this wisdom the way that the woman of the parable desired justice? Do you desire this wisdom for trials that you may manage yourself well and patiently and for the glory of God within the trials that come your way? God gives generously. He also gives, James says, without finding fault. Without finding fault. A couple of things I want to highlight here. First is just this can be a a general reminder of the gospel. We come before our God in prayer and we ought always to remember that when we come before him in Christ, those who trust in Jesus Christ, when we come before him, he will not find fault with us. That ought to stop us in our tracks every time we think about prayer and every time we begin to pray that the God who created the universe does not find fault with us because we come to him in Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews says this ought to fill us with confidence. We come before the throne of grace confidently. Why? Because we have a great high priest who has cleansed us and thus we can pray and thus God hears our prayers and he delights to hear our prayers. Secondly though, He does not find fault, and this is more specifically what James means here, is that God's generosity will never run dry. If you go to a human being and ask him or her for the same thing each and every day, most often what's going to happen? Generosity is going to run out. They're they're going to stop giving you what you ask for. You come day after day. But James' point is this. If you feel that Uh, you are somehow embarrassed having to ask God for wisdom each and every day. You feel that you are so lacking in it. You're never going to stop. You're never going to stop coming to God with this prayer. James says, remember, he does not find fault. He will not hold it against you for coming to him and asking him for wisdom again and again and again. There are two reasons why we can be sure that that is so. The first is this. When we come to God again and again and again asking for these graces of the Christian life, we're coming humbly. It takes humility to say to ourselves each and every day, I need wisdom and only God can give me that wisdom. Later on in James, we will read, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Our God doesn't turn away humble sinners who come to him for grace. That's not what he does. He delights to receive the humble sinner who comes to him in grace. Moreover, God delights to accept our humility because it glorifies him. It's a statement, a declaration, that we need an all-sufficient God to supply us with all that we need. If you read Spurgeon's morning and evening devotional this morning, then you would have read this. And this is what Spurgeon says. He says, The act of prayer teaches us our unworthiness, which is a very salutary lesson for such proud beings as we are. If God gave us favors without commanding us to pray for them, we should never know how poor we are. But a true prayer is an inventory of wants, a catalog of necessities, 
a revelation of hidden poverty. While it is an application to divine wealth, it is a confession of human emptiness. Isn't that beautiful? We're applying for the wealth that God has. We're admitting the emptiness that we have. He goes on to say, The most healthy state of a Christian is to be always empty in self and constantly depending upon the Lord for supplies. To be always poor in self and always rich in Jesus. Weak as water personally, but mighty through God to do great exploits. And hence the use of prayer. Because while it adores God, it lays the creature where it should be in the very dust. Prayer is perhaps the thing that we do in this world that is most reflective of true reality. We are helpless. We are empty in and of ourselves. God is all sufficient. It is when we pray that we are openly showing what is most in line with the reality of the cosmos that God has made. And so James gives us this very assuring promise. He says, it will be given. You come to God humbly, asking for this wisdom and trial. Come to him earnestly, filled with faith, repeatedly. It will be given. What a promise. John chapter 16, Jesus said, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. 1 John chapter 5, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. To be confident that God fulfills his promise to furnish us with exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. The passage ends with a warning and an encouragement. Don't be one who doubts. Be one who is faithful. Now, if you're anything like me, you read verses 7 and 8, and you understand that there are times when your faith is weak. There are times when you uh, are not completely without doubt. You struggle with doubts, and your faith can waver. And so we all ask, does that mean we're disqualified? from receiving these graces from God. If your faith ever wavers, if it's ever weak, does that mean this promise is not for you? No, that's not what it means. Imagine uh, a believer and a doubter. Well, Well, this is exactly the contrast that James is painting. We'll call the believer Bob, the doubter Doug. Bob the believer... Uh, is someone who believes the gospel of Christ. He submits himself to the word of God and the church. He attends faithfully on Sundays. He reads his Bible, prays most days, but sometimes struggles with various doubts. That's probably how you could define most uh, sincere, genuine Christians. Faithfully going to the word of God, involved in the church, loves the people of God, but struggles with various doubts. Bob's life is defined by pursuing God, by a desire to glorify him, by a desire to love him more and trust him more. This is not the doubter that James is describing. His life is oriented always in the same way for God, even when his faith is weak. Doug the doubter has a belief in God, but it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And it's always based on circumstance. When pressure is applied, he willingly and openly admits that he does not trust God. 
James describes this kind of doubter as one who is like the waves of the sea. Really, what James is describing is hypocrisy. You believe one day, you don't believe another. Not you struggle with doubts in the midst of your faith, but you don't believe. When the wind picks up, waves start to crash. That's what water is, just moves with the wind. Your circumstances dictate what direction you go. The opposite of this, of course, is steadfastness, to which we are called. We had the derecho storm back in the summer, and our girls were saying, as it was going on, and we started hearing this crazy wind blow against our house, and they said, one of them said, I'm so thankful that we live in a house that's made of bricks, because it wasn't going to be blown over even by such a wind that we saw that time. And to think about that picture, that the wind blows... But the house remains faced in the same direction. It doesn't mean that there's some work that has to be done in resisting that wind. But the wind blows, you're going in the same direction. A wave goes whatever direction the wind does. That's the picture that James is is painting for us. When the winds of trial come, are we like a house that stands firm and faces the same direction? Even if it is hard and even if we are not filled with joyful confidence of other times. Or are we like water that immediately goes in the direction of the wind and will rage as long as the storm and then becomes calm again when the storm dies down? That's the difference between doubts and faith the way that James describes. Holding on to faith even when it is weak. It's not about having a perfect faith. It's about holding on to faith even when it is weak. The gospel of Mark, Jesus is uh, brought a, a young boy who's possessed by an evil spirit. He's talking with the father and he asks him if he believes in the power of Jesus to heal. The man says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's, that's a perfect description of how we ought to think of ourselves. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There's a few things of hope I just want to mention as we close. The first is this. Even when we do feel weak, God is the God with glorious strength. Ephesians chapter 3 says he strengthens us according to the riches of his glory. Of course you feel weak because we're not strong enough to do it on our own. We need the riches of his glory to be strengthened in Christ Jesus. Secondly, this, God promises to provide us with more support and more strength as it is needed. If you ever walk with people through trials, you know that God gives more grace for the moment. Grace for every trial based on our needs. Goodwin says, as your trials abound, so this glorious power of God will also abound towards you. What a comforting reminder that God says, whatever's to come, we don't know what's to come, but we know whenever it, do, and whenever it does come, God has already decreed to provide us with the grace that we need to stand. And then, of course, we always look to our ultimate salvation that is guaranteed to us in Christ. Why? Can we have this kind of an attitude in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulations of this world? Because God has already given us the guarantee, the hope of eternal life. And we can understand that this world prepares us for the next. 
1 Peter chapter 8. We'll close just by reading this. The apostle says, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And he says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish, and establish you. That's Peter's call. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and ask that you would furnish us with this wisdom. And we would come humbly, earnestly, filled with faith, knowing that we need exactly what you promised to give for these moments that you have laid out for us. We don't look forward to these times of great trial, uh, these times of, of great difficulty. And we confess that without your help, we will not be able to live according to the way you call us to live. So give us this wisdom. We need it, and we desperately want it. And we thank you and we praise you for your promise to give us grace for every trial. Thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing uh, number 314 in the blue hymnal, Come Now Fount of